Welcome to the Metaphoricist Magazine podcast, your home for beautifully made speculative fiction. The magazine is edited by B. Morris Allen, and I'm your host, Matt Gomez. This week's story is the sixth and final part of The Zoo Diaries by Frances Polly. Frances Polly lives in Washington State with her family, a small menagerie, and far too many houseplants. She enjoys a plant-based vegan lifestyle, animal activism, and, of course, reading. She writes stories about animal characters, often in the speculative fiction category. Find her online at francispolly.com. That's F-R-A-N-C-E-S-P-A-U-L-I.com or on Twitter at Moth in Darkness. Let's jump in. Previously, At the Rain River Zoological Gardens, one escape became the catalyst for a series of unfortunate incidents. The tortoise, Oliver, roamed the zoo as a fugitive, searching for his missing cage mate, Miranda. But when the duplicitous crow led him to the marshland, Oliver's imagined reunion turned into heartbreak. While the zoo's photography contest broke all attendance records, the crowd's poor behavior heaped extra stress upon the already troubled animals. The spike in attendance boded well for the bottom line but the zoo was forced to hire armed security to keep the mobs in line. While Oliver nursed his broken heart, the employee appreciation potluck got underway. The alcohol flowed freely, and the party got quickly out of hand. The already overstressed animals hunkered in their cages, while the combination of booze, armed security, and long-repressed instincts set the scene for inevitable tragedy. Lion Enclosure Charlie dreams in the night, too. He stalks the tube gazelles, rumbling in his throat and stepping on death's silent paws. The savannah mocks him. It has erased the other lions, left him alone with a hollow gut and a herd of nightmare beasts that slip between his paws each time he makes a lunge in their direction. They squeak and scatter, but Charlie can still smell them. He can smell, smell, smell. The meat that is sweet and taut, that bursts beneath his fangs without blood. He opens his eyes. The scent lingers after the dream is gone. The squeaks become voices, sounds of familiar, barking men. They are too close, too loud. Charlie blinks and gazes toward his trench in the high wall. They who bring food are at his wire. They have slithered down the wall, perhaps, or entered through some invisible breach in his defenses. They stagger and laugh. There are two of them, pale faces with white teeth. A camera shutter clicks from the far side of the trench, the barking slurs and curses. The smell of meat is on them. It is there in the night, real and not dreamed of. There is a wire, Charlie knows. Vaguely, he remembers that it bites back. He lowers his belly to the grass, opens his jaws and huffs. Confusion. His head swims, the meaty scent, the voices that almost squeak in the darkness. Charlie creeps forward. He believes he can leap straight over the wire. He can spring across the trench. He can taste the air. He can stalk and pounce and devour. The camera ticks like a heartbeat. Charlie tenses, breathes out, and almost changes his mind. The inhale, however, is too much for him. The scent the meat on the night wind. He moves without warning. 
He is a streak in the grass, a lightning strike, a blur sailing over the wire, past the trench, jaws open, and teeth showing white as bone. Zebras The lead zebra lifts her head, stretches her rubbery nostrils wide, and sucks in a rush of night air. Something is not right. She limps a few paces away from the herd. Her left fetlock is bruised. She has forgotten her own advice and stepped into one of the many holes left in her paddock by the native gophers. These do not belong in the zoo and utterly disregard the respectable order of fences and cement walls. Tonight, even their soft scritching has died. The ground beneath the zebra's hooves is still and silent. The zoo holds its breath. Even the clumsy elephant is noticed. The lead zebra can see Shanti's fat shadow by the light leaking out of her shelter. The elephant's trunk is up. Her ears flutter. She listens, as the zebra does, to the sudden, pregnant quiet. Not even a crow whispers. The zebra trembles. Her striped skin twitches. She breathes and tenses, and the rest of the herd lifts their heads as one, sleepy, hesitant, rigid from flank to foreleg. For one heartbeat, the night waits. The moment freezes. Then a sound that is not of the zoo echoes out of its depths. It is a primal, wild noise. And even though she has never lived one day of her life outside safe walls, the zebra knows it in an instant. The herd breaks, wheeling together and hammering the ground in retreat. The sound chases them. It is all instinct, wholly dangerous, violent, deadly. It is the lion roaring, and it goes on and on. The zebras circle inside their fence. They race away from the feeding sound, but the fence brings them back again and again. There is nowhere to go. They streak past the elephant three times before a gunshot fires into the zoo center. That sound they all know. That sound echoes outward. A stone lobbed through glass. A heavy step on thin ice. A bursting heart inside a warm chest. It remains with him plays over and over in every mind, in every memory, long after the world has gone silent again. Elephant Paddock Shanti counts her own breaths. The night cradles her, dead and black on all sides. She is a statue, a topiary elephant held forever in a moment between action and reaction. Though everything is silence now, the gunshot lingers, it is branded into her mind. It will live there forever. Be with them all forever. She stares over her fence, cataloging shadows, shapes that register as tree, bench, table. She counts 60 breaths, and still her ears hear only the mute shock of 600 animals living their lives in small square boxes. Oliver is out there. Oliver was out there? Shanti's tail flicks and the spell is broken. She hears the soft hiss of her water faucet dribbling. She hears the zebra's shifting position, hooves against dirt, pelt brushing against pelt. Slowly, they all come back to life. All but one, perhaps. Shanti thinks of it, of Oliver and the crow's evil warning. Someone will be shot. She let him out. Twice now, she's lifted the fence for her tortoise. Her trunk drops, heavy and dragging at her face. Shanti counts her toes, five arch-shaped nails on each foot. She is shaking, 
rattling in her bones and weeping when the first crows arrive. Lion! Even their croaking voices seem to whisper tonight. Lion attack! Lion shot! Shanti shivers from her trunk to her tail. She is an earthquake, a mountain shudder, and though the words are tragedy, though the worst thing of all has happened, she is relieved. Ape House Gonzo strains against the bars until his knuckles throb. His fists are welded to the steel. His lips sneer in a perpetual toothy mask that drives his troop to the far corners of the cage and makes him an outcast. The macaques cringe and shiver in the dark. They long to sneak away, to slip through their square door and hide, but the gunshot holds them in place. Gonzo hears it as a claw against his spine. He knows someone has gone, and he wishes it was him. He has lost the bean again. It has been given and taken away, and now he thinks he will die of missing it. The night lingers. The most cowardly of his troops slink against the wall, vanish into the safe familiarity of the interior cage. The rest wait, listening with their faces pressed near to the bars and their eyes drifting closed, open, closed again. A pigeon comes first. It flutters past the bars like an overstuffed bat and lands on the signpost beside the path. The troop whispers, shuffles, and rearranges the faces at the cage front. Gonzo resists the urge to lunge at them. He could sink his teeth into a fat, furry body. He could scratch and tear, but it would not bring back his bean. He waits. The troop loses patience and whispers to the plump bird who is only waiting to be invited, who has clearly come to tell a story, but holds its tongue until the moment is too pregnant to resist. What is it? The troop voices blend into one. What has happened? The lion has gone mad. The pigeon drops from its perch and marches across the path, puffed up, breast forward. He's gone mad and attacked they who feed. The macaque troop gasps and tightens its huddle. Gonzo is outside, alone. He hears their gibbering and thinks he is not a monkey. He is not like that. He is something else, something mad like the lion. Is it dead? One of the macaques asks. The pigeon makes a rolling, cooing sound and flaps its wings. No, it says. Of course not. They only shot him with a sleeping gun. But he'll be sold for sure, sent to another zoo or someplace else. Liar, the crow's voice slices between the monkeys and their informant. She streaks past once, a malicious shadow, then returns in a slow glide and lands on the ledge outside Gonzo's bars. She struts toward the troop, feathers gleaming in the moonlight. The pigeon lies, she says. They've killed him for it as sure as anything. Who would trust a crow? The pigeon puffs and prickles. Of course they didn't. I saw it, Deborah croaks. I was there at the railing when he flew at them. Lions don't fly, the pigeon insists. Deborah clacks her beak, stabbing it at the bars and driving the troop backwards. They cringe from her, and she pivots, paces back toward Gonzo with a gleam in her eye. He attacked. The crow sings it. Like a beast turned on them with tooth and claw. Gonzo hears her glee at that. Her approval of the horror radiates until she is a small black sun. There was blood, she says. There was screaming. The slim black body bobs in his direction, 
one clawed step at a time. The sound of her toes against the concrete seems louder than her words, larger somehow. Gonzo freezes, listening to the tiny scratches as if they are spikes against his skull. You're a liar, the pigeon shouts from the grass. It's all true. Deborah swivels toward her accuser, looks away for less than a breath. It is all the time Gonzo needs. His fist flies through the bars, opening, stretching. His fingers close around a soft, warm body, and he drags the crow into his cage. He holds her, stunned and squeaking, in a tightening grip. I saw it too, the pigeon continues as if nothing has happened. The gun was not lethal. There was no death. In Gonzo's paw, Deborah makes a final sound, a squeal of protest, an impotent last argument. Perhaps it is only a plea for her life, but the air has left her, and her words are dead before Gonzo feels the crunching of her bones against his palm. She is silent, and he thinks it is the only good thing he has ever done. Murder The crows call tribute. They sweep above the pathways, circling from cage to cage, shadows in the night. They sing a song of praise to death itself. They sing for Charlie, for the mad lion, and not one of their own. They have not yet discovered Deborah's body, cast into the long grass beside the ape house. They do not sing of loss, but of the great, inevitable cycle, the ending triumphant, the ultimate predator that will come for each and every animal in their time. Their words are power, dark magic carried forth on streaking black bodies. One by one, their clattering voices transport the zoo's population. They sing, and they carry each mind who hears their song, instantly back to a place only vaguely remembered. An instinct. A genetic programming. The zoo walls fade, becoming shadows too. The trees spread and grow in the wind of the murder's passing. The plastic, oil-tinged air itself clarifies. The great cellular memory of freedom walks in the crow's wake. It is the wild. It is the origin. It takes possession of the zoo, squatting between the enclosures and weaving its spell. In the darkness, the elephant trumpets, a blaring of sound, an homage to death and freedom. From the cat house, an answer comes in the form of discordant rowling. The apes ook and pound their chests. The bears stretch black lips and let loose a terrible, magnificent roaring. It is chaos. It is glory. They are no longer here, behind their bars and their trenches. Tonight, this is Africa. It is Borneo, Malaysia, Indonesia. It is a Nepalese mountain peak, an Amazonian cloud forest. In each beating heart, the world shifts outward. The song spreads. The tribute is called again and again. It is a celebration and a dare, a defiant whisper. Come for him. Come. Death walks among them, and for one moment, they are all free. Damage Control Press Release Rain River Zoological Gardens Incident Report Friday evening, during an employee appreciation potluck, Two individuals bypassed zoo security and entered our African lion exhibit. One man was hospitalized with non-life-threatening injuries, and the other was treated at the scene. Both were under the influence at the time. 
Rain River Zoological Gardens asks that all questions regarding this incident be directed to our PR office. We thank the public for their concern and for the many inquiries about the lion's welfare. The situation is fully under control, but we have made the difficult decision to close the park for one week in order to give the staff and animals time to recover from the incident. The zoo will reopen for regular hours on Saturday the 16th. We look forward to seeing you again soon. Zoo Management The loss is unprecedented, and the board panics. PR is in chaos, and the injured employee's family threatens to sue. It is decided to settle out of court. It is estimated this will likely eat through all the profits resulting from the video contest. Belts will have to be tightened again. Compromises will need to be made. When a keeper stands up to argue, they are shouted down, reminded that a bankrupt zoo must redistribute or be forced to cull. They walk a fine line, but accounting believes they can stay open. They can continue to provide the minimum requirements and remain afloat. They can keep their animals. All but one. Grizzly Grotto For three days, Hector refuses to eat his food. Each morning, he trundles from his den, growls at the empty railing, and sniffs whatever breakfast has been left for him with growing suspicion. There is white powder on his food, persistent grains that he can never quite rub off and that give his fruit a taste sharp as a bee sting. His belly grumbles, but for once in his life, Hector pays it no mind. He sulks. He scratches freely on the broken stump, and on the fourth day, the miracle happens. Hector wakes late. His elbows and hips have been aching again, and without his artist to pose for, he sees no point in an early day. He lifts his head with deliberate care, only to realize the wall of his den is moving. A tinny, scraping noise has awoken him, and he suffers a twinge of alarm until he sees the bars. This wall has moved before, Hector remembers, and by the time it retracts fully, he is sitting, waiting for his doctors and their skewers of grapes. Beyond the wall is a long hallway. There is no cage today, but Hector's doctor is here. She has her clipboard in hand, and the smell of grapes is on her. Hector churs and raises his paws. The doctor smiles, making her notes. She has helpers with her, and one of them summons the skewer. Hector poses. When the grapes are offered through the bars, he reaches for them, but they are quickly pulled away again. For a moment, he thinks this will be torture. They've only come to taunt an aging bear. His doctor makes encouraging sounds with her tiny mouth. She claps, and Hector scoots closer to the bars. They let him have the grapes. One by one, he plucks them from the stick, savoring the ritual, the smiles, and the contact. At one point, his pelt is pricked. They use the long stick with its needle. Hector registers the assault and understands. He churs and performs, and when the doctor claps for him, Hector knows suddenly that he is not a real bear. Perhaps he never was. They who clap have made him a dancing fool, a clown. They have shaped him, formed him into a thing that poses. And though shame fills him, Hector knows he will not eat the bitter food. If he resists, if he waits for it, his reward will be an open den wall, a stick full of grapes, and all the attention, the claps and smiles a clown could ever want. Hyena Pen 
It takes three days for Rocco to vanish. Alice has not allowed him to mate again, and on the fourth morning, she wakes to an empty cage. His scent lingers, and she spends time urinating over the top of it. She erases him, and is glad when his stink no longer invades her space. Alice climbs to the very top of her stair-step rock and lies, panting and contented. Her cage is her own. Her water. Her food. Her rock. She stares out at the empty pathways and wonders if the tortoise has found the aviary. She doesn't exactly miss conversation, but she thinks the reptile was far less offensive than her last companion. Alice hopes he has found his bird. She hopes that the guns in the night were not for him, and she shivers at the memory of the crow's song. Liars. Alice remembers that crows lie. She shakes, cackles, and chooses to believe that the tortoise is fine, happy. In her belly, Alice carries a new litter. She knows this, though she cannot feel them yet. She will have cubs again. She will make life, make tiny voices, tiny spotted bodies that sing and scamper. With these cubs, she will not waste time. Alice will teach them her tricks, teach them everything quickly. And when she loses them again, she will know that they are ready. They will learn, and then they will leave. Alice cackles with her ears flat and her tail twitching. Every instinct in her body says that this is wrong. The stupid cat's voice echoes in her mind, insisting that this is how it should be. She hears Sultan purring again and cannot make herself agree with him. For her sanity, however, Alice swallows her instincts, her need, and her understanding of pack. Animals in cages do not have room to spare. Tortoise Enclosure It takes three days for Oliver to be caught. He spends two of them beside the duck pond, staring at the water while the birds mistake him for a stone. They perch on his shell, preening and flicking their damp tails while Oliver broods and does his best not to hear the occasional, familiar honking from the heron's enclosure. There are many wading birds here, and the mating noises could have come from any of them. When he is finally discovered by those who carry guns, Oliver trundles into the path to meet them. He does not struggle when they tarp and lift him. He does not move while the zoo vehicle carries him back to his pen. He is done. There is nothing to dig for now, and all he wants is to sprawl beside his burrow entrance and wait for another hundred years to pass. When the vehicle stops at his cozy, familiar wall, however, Oliver is flabbergasted. As if they have stolen the thoughts from his heart, someone has taken down the heron sign. In its place, beside the plate with his name and picture on it, is another tortoise. Oliver freezes as he is balanced atop the wall. He reads and reads while they who mind fences scramble to shift and lower him. As the sign predicted, there is another tortoise waiting. It has occupied the warm spot outside Oliver's burrow. It is smaller than him less pale and less pyramided. Oliver charges it the moment he is released. The invader barely has time to brace for impact before their shells crash together. Oliver's legs churn, his fat, spiked forelegs grip the earth. He is wedged beneath the other's shell and heaves, lifts in an attempt to flip them. Invader, he says, get out! I was here first, the new tortoise ridiculously claims. Oliver stops heaving, 
They settle, shift inches apart, and glare at one another. That's my burrow, Oliver says. Who do you think dug it? The smaller tortoise twists its neck, stretches, and looks toward the wall, where they who carry guns are climbing back into their vehicle. Humans don't dig, Oliver says. Stupid. Well, where were you? The newcomer demands. None of your business. Oliver lunges again, and this time the other tortoise scoots out of the way. Oliver settles into his place. Go away, he says. I don't want a mate. Nor do I, the intruder says. A quiet stretches between them. Oliver feels warm dust beneath his plastron. He smells the reeds and the grass and the water in his shallow pool. What's your name? he asks finally. Arnold, the newcomer answers. Sign says you're female, Oliver comments. I find that those who make signs often have trouble understanding them, Arnold says. Oliver stares at him. He blinks twice and then nods his blunt head. Arnold then, he says with a sigh. It is not a terrible name. It's not a terrible thing to share space, to talk perhaps, to joust in battle, to sit by the reeds or the burrow and not be alone. Animals in cages cannot choose who comes and who goes. They cannot be selective. Oliver tucks his head into his shell, pulls his legs in, and thinks it will be okay to share again. Well, Arnold, he grumbles, you can dig your own hole over there. Pigeon Hell Three days after the lion's murder, Peg waddles through the aviary's twin doors. They who sweep and clean have propped it open with their mop cart and left enough of a gap for an escape. She is almost stepped on as she dodges their shifting feet, and she thinks she sees a finch fly out as well, but she no longer cares about fat, spoiled, tweeting birds. She is free again, popping like a fluffy cork through the last door and out into the blissfully dry open. Peg rushes into a shadow beside the trash cans and catches her breath. She has been to Pigeon Paradise, and they can keep it. Regardless, she has stories to tell. She's out now, and her heart fills. Her lungs suck in warm, ordinary air. She smells hot asphalt and cold popcorn and nearly swoons. When those who clean are not looking, Peg flies, low and with great effort, away from the aviary building. She stops frequently, perching on a rail or a prickly bush and panting from exertion. The zoo is larger than she remembers, and a diet of rich, free food weighs on her. When she finally finds her flock, she is out of breath and energy. Peg drops among them like a tossed stone, and they fluff and coo at her. Where have you been? The one called Peter grumbles and cocks his head, taking in her girth. What has happened to you? I have been to Pigeon Heaven, Peg announces, with less echo than she's intended. She is still surprised by their lackluster reaction. We all have, Peter says, but the night of everlasting food has ended. What? Peg blinks and forgets she meant to awe them, to brag of her exploits and her daring. What night? The pigeon flock closes in around her. They make a tight circle, just as she'd hoped but their attention is not on her. They look to Peter, and their beady eyes shimmer. A night like none other. Peter's voice booms in an epic, hollow tone. 
The flock holds its breath, and Peg can't help but lean forward, listening, waiting, where the meal is more than a thousand birds could devour. Piles of food lined up for the taking, mountains of sweet bread, fruit, meats, and cheeses. Peg loves cheese. She shivers, cooing softly in the back of her throat. It was like a dream, he says, a night of magic and wishes. The flock bobs agreement, falling into a pensive, reverent silence. Peg's craw tightens. She thinks of the aviary and the sticky air, of the bird seed that seemed to stick in her throat when she tried to swallow it. She imagines the night of everlasting food and knows she has missed it. Pigeon Heaven came to the flock. It found them here in the nice dry air, and Peg has missed it. Where were you? Another of her flock mates notices Peg, bobbing and scooting closer in the wake of Peter's story. Where have you been? they ask. Peg smooths her gray plumage and dips her head. I have been in pigeon hell, she tells them. The Elephant Paddock Shanti is counting the zebras when Oliver visits. It has been four days since the gunshot in the night, and she has divided her time since between drawing portraits of the tortoise with her straw and making friends with her neighbors. The zebra leader is called Alberta, and when Oliver pokes his head free of his tunnel, she flares her rubbery nostrils and snorts. Shanti stops counting stripes and pivots so that Oliver has room to emerge. She's been guarding his tunnel in the hopes he might need it to get back into his enclosure. That he might pop out of it from the inside has never occurred to her. Hello, Shanti, he says. Oliver? Her trunk quivers. The long lashes above her eyes dance. You're back. Do you mind? He asks. I wouldn't want to bother you. For a long moment, he retracts, sinking back into his tunnel. No! Shanti's heart stops. I'm glad to see you. You're sure? Oliver climbs back out of the hole. I was thinking it might be nice to visit, since the tunnel is still open. I've been guarding it, Shanti says, so they won't fill it in. Thank you. Oliver pops completely free of the ground and stretches his neck out. How have you been? I've met the zebras, she confesses. The herd leader lets me count her stripes. Wonderful, Oliver says. Did you find Miranda? Shanti watches him closely. Yes. Oliver's voice is flat and dry. And now there's another tortoise in my pen. Would you mind terribly if I visited more often? I wouldn't mind at all. Shanti tries to count her heartbeats, but they are coming too fast. She curls her trunk and imagines talking with Oliver every evening, waiting for him by his hole while the zebras tramp and circle, inviting him into the shed, perhaps, maybe even... Would you like to count me? he asks. Shanti shivers and drops her trunk low. She believes his bird friend is a fool. With a brief flutter of her ears, she steadies her voice and gives him her best answer. I thought you'd never ask. Ape House Gonzo wakes from dreams of the dead crow. It has been five days since Deborah's murder, but he can still feel a small, shattered body in his paws. 
The other macaques keep their distance. Gonzo is no longer brushed past or jumped upon. On the fifth morning, his headache is less sharp, his shaking subdued to its ordinary level of discomfort. He believes that black cherries were evil. They who swept poisoned him, drove him to the ultimate destructive act. Gonzo still hears the crunching when he chews and has taken the eating last, if at all. He feels better, somehow, picking at the few mushy scraps the troop determines to pour to devour. He sits outside while the troop dines, but he only looks toward the long grass twice today. Like the effects of the evil cherry, his guilt is fading. When the first of his cage mates wanders through the square door, Gonzo swings down from the ropes and circles so that he can slip inside without contact. He waits for the others, but they are slow today. They linger, and he hears excited whispers, the soft screeching usually reserved for something new and confusing. Gonzo tries to resist their enthusiasm, but despite everything, he is still a monkey. He passes through the door with his shoulders hunched, with his eyes down and the sound leading him. Inside, someone has lain new straw across the floor. The smell of fruit overpowers the hay, however, and neither are enough to mask a sweeter scent coming from a far corner. Gonzo lifts his head. The troop has gathered around a pile of branches. Their poses are cautious, but already one female pokes at the new thing, leaping back when its leaves rattle at her touch. Not exactly fresh. Not growing. Gonzo's heart still climbs into his throat at the sight. He swings forward, lopes sideways, and scatters the troop. The branches lie in a tangle behind the fruit bucket. They may be slightly shriveled, but they are green and leafy. He smells them with his mouth open, sucking in as much of the air as he can devour. On the stems, no cherries grow, red as rubies and thick as the ticks on a wild hog. Gonzo hesitates, disappointed. His lips peel back. He remembers the crow, but these branches are harmless. As Gonzo plucks the first leaf, his troop eases closer. As he fits the thin greenery between his lips, he remembers that he had another troop once. There was a time when he did not hunker and scowl. There was a time when he sat in the branches eating green leaves with his friends. The taste is flat and stale. The branches are dying, not fresh and alive. The leaves are wrinkled, squishing instead of tearing between his teeth. There are far too many here for him alone. When the bold female reaches for a neighboring branch, Gonzo resists the urge to show her his fangs. Instead, he chews. He makes a show of it, selecting and plucking a leaf, chewing and swallowing with little pleasure. For a moment, he imagines red cherries among the leaves, but he recognizes the thought for what it is. Madness. He is not a free monkey. His troop has long forgotten him, and this one only barely understands what a monkey is. The others mimic him. They creep in until a circle of macaques sit in a ring. Together they devour the leaves, and as Gonzo chews beside them, he remembers that they have names, that long ago he learned them, long before he stopped caring. He helps the oldest male, who is stupidly lipping at the woody bark. Gonzo shows him to ignore this, to focus on the leaves. They eat side by side, and the troop forgets that he was a monster. Life in a cage is uncertain, 
He does not know if he will ever taste the bean again, but even without it, he knows he must live. The troop draws him in, and Gonzo gives up and joins them. Epilogue The zoo reopens after seven days. Attendance is spotty at first, but builds over time, though it never quite reaches pre-contest levels. All questions about the lion's fate remain unanswered. The small public outcry is short-lived. In an attempt to recapture their original success, the PR department has cameras installed in all animal enclosures. It is an expensive and ultimately futile venture. Someone is written up for it. On the whole, the animals ignore the devices. Only the crows seem fascinated by the lenses, and the zoo cam feed is overtaken for a week by preening, feathered faces. Eventually, most are shut down. The crows find new sport elsewhere. The zoo cam website features only one feed, a single camera still streaming. It witnesses the birth of a robust litter of hyena pups. The tiny, spotted babies become internet celebrities for a few short weeks. They are blissfully unaware of this. They have no care to be famous, for their mother has much to teach them, and time is a fleeting hare scrambling ahead of her. It has freedom, and forever just beyond her reach. The camera is turned off once they are gone. It misses their mother's grief. It does not witness the courtship of an elephant and a tortoise, the death of a bear, nor the slow integration of one extraordinary macaque into a troop of domesticated monkeys. Only the birds tell these stories, and everybody knows that birds always lie. That was the sixth and final part of The Zoo Diaries by Francis Pauly. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love it if you'd leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you listen to us on. Or, better yet, share the magazine and podcast with a friend. If you'd like to listen to more speculative fiction, visit us online at magazine.metaphoricist.com or on Twitter at metaphoricistmag.com.